Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1331.IS0816, certificate number 31310. Trapper Keepers. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Here you are. Oh. Say, what is that thing? It's my trapper for me. It sure is a lot neater than this. That's because it traps my papers in so they won't fall out. And I've got a trapper folder for each subject. That's pretty neat. Mm -hmm. And the trapper keeper holds all my trappers. This flap even has a Velcro closure to keep everything inside. Boy, I've got to get a trapper and get my act together. If you do, I'll uh, let you carry my books. I like to think I know you pretty well. I mean, there are a lot of secrets you still have from me. I'm full of secrets. I don't know everything about what goes on over at Jennings' home. I'm the Laura Palmer of this broadcast. But I'm inclined to suspect that you like me. I do like you. That's correct. Well... Yes, you do like me, but also, like me, you are somewhat of a stationary fetishist. <laughs> Is that true? <clears throat> do you crave colored pencils and little um, pencil cases and different notebooks and stuff? I you know what I'm talking about. I don't about. love the word crave, and I'm not, right. I'm not sure it's a Fetish. Okay. Like I like, <laughs> like right, I've so. never like I don't know how excited I've ever been by a pencil sharpener. Let's but. not split hairs. Do you want but I do love stationery. Okay. You are right. I see it in your eyes. Uh, you don't like crave or fetish because those words get too close to the heart of how you feel about <laughs> these my things. Very intense personal <laughs> feelings. You're like, no, it's not a fetish. Last night my daughter was telling me she wanted uh to try out like a, a Japanese brush pen that she had seen one of her friends using. Oh, yeah. And I've got like, oh, I got a bunch of those on my desk. And I got one out and we just played with this brush pen for hours because it, it's a you can get a beautiful line out of it. She's very artistic. She loves, I can just hang out in an art supply store with her for an hour. And that was something I loved in my childhood, just looking at different colors of colored pencils and weird markers and weird erasable markers and smelly markers. And you are, again, not to make every show about how you're slightly younger than me, but there was a kind of stationary revolution somewhere along the way. And you were living in Asia, which was, I like to think, the font, and I mean the fountain, from whence this great revolution in smelly markers like arose into the world. I think it was ground zero. I mean... You know, to this day, if you go to any Japanese department store, there will be a whole floor of stationery. And if you want 150 erasers shaped like different kinds of sushi or um, weird, uh, every combination of Hello Kitty characters on a different little notepad or... My daughter just brought two days ago a handful of little erasers shaped like sushi to me and said, what kinds of sushi are these? And I was like, well, which one is this? And she was like, that's clearly salmon. These are fish eggs. But what's this? And I was like, it's Maguro. She was like, ah. Oh. Wow. Like, where did she get her sushi stationery? <clears throat> no idea. But I mean, that's the thing about the crazy stationery, right? It comes in through, it's, there, it's like sugar ants. It comes into our lives <laughs> through it, little holes. It usually goes out of mine through little holes, but that's mostly just my kids knowing where I keep my stapler <laughs> pencils and Japanese brush pens, and then I never see them again. Uh, I think East Asia, it was ground zero for that kind of thing, because when I was living, I lived there in the early 80s, 
And there's so much you could not buy. Couldn't buy American groceries. Couldn't buy any of the American toy brands I liked. It was always weird Mazinga Z robots mm -hmm. and stuff. But what you could get uh, that was many times better than anything in a, in a, I was about to say Target. There was no Target. Anything in a Kmart was stationary. Like yeah. these amazing pencil boxes. I don't know if they were Japanese imports or if this had already started to spread to Korea and Taiwan and the other emerging markets. But um, pencil boxes that would have a bunch of secret compartments and a series of buttons. You know, you press button five and the pencil sharpener pops out. You press button six, the little hidden tray comes out. It was a transformer in pencil box form. And it didn't turn into a robot. It turned into an open pencil box. Right. <laughs> but yes. Uh, and I loved all this stuff. My school had a little bookstore. Uh, my school in Korea had a little bookstore where you couldn't buy books, but you could buy, you know, weird glue and scissors and notebooks. And, you know, every year I had to have, you know, one of these and four of these. And six, they had a list that got sent home. And I would, I would dutifully buy all my stuff. And I would just love it. I, to this day, I love school and art supplies. Did you try to learn calligraphy? Was that a component of, um, your, you have these little paintbrushes. Did you use those to just to draw or did you try and write with them? I love typography, but I've never taken a calligraphy class. I probably should because when you watch people do it on YouTube, oh, you know, I could watch YouTube calligraphy videos all day. But you know, there's that whole tradition in Japan where you, you just draw one character for 25 years, become the master of like one drawing one character. Yeah, I'm going to do that in English. <laughs> I'm going to... letter B. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> lowercase thinking... Lowercase B. Yeah, I'm thinking lowercase <laughs> B. I'm going to yeah. get really good at lowercase <laughs> B. And I'll be the guy you call in for that. Well, let me tell you what it was like here in darkest America during your halcyon days in Korea with all your scented erasers. This is what I want to know. Because yeah. I would come home in the summers for back-to-school shopping at Mervyn's, and you'd see all the kids in there getting their cool gear. Yeah. And I, I feel like I was missing the whole thing. Well, in the 1970s, my experience at least, my dad was a lawyer and my mom was a computer programmer. So the stationery that I had were either... Yellow legal pads. That's what I had from my lawyer dad. Yellow legal pads everywhere. <laughs> Just a, in profusion. And they all had like already chicken scratch notes taking up the first half of them. So I only had the back half of a thousand yellow legal pads. Most of my drawing paper was like invoices for my grandpa's pet food sales. Well, what, what my mom had was the giant, giant reams of dot matrix printer paper that was all, it was connected, right? It was all still just, just a huge single. It was like the manuscript of On the Road, except it wasn't toilet paper. It had the perforations on the yeah. side, right? Yeah. Wow, that and, takes me back. And perforations between sheets. Mm -hmm. And the sheets were, uh, had green and white striped lines on them. Uh, so you could, you know, at a glance kind of know where you were. By the time we got our first dot matrix printer, it did not have the adding machine lines. So I, I kind of missed out on that. But what a bummer if you're trying to draw. And, uh, and well, everything's lined and colored. Yeah, you can you can sort of imagine them away. But we also had punch cards. Uh, the unfortunate thing about at, at my house, we did. Mom would bring home big, big bins of punch cards, but they were, all had punches. Could taken you out of them. could you like use them to reverse engineer like military secrets? Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Each one contained all the secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I could if these are in the right order. I can build a parabolic mic or a laser for shooting the San Andreas Vault or something. But most of our pens were just pens. You know, I, I think uh, my dad had some good pens, but no one, no one in my family had nib pens. Yeah. And then there were Bic pens. Cheap Bic pens. And three ring binders that you might find in a law office. A lot of stuff, like everything in my early childhood, it was just cast off stuff from the military industrial complex I think that we produced a lot of three ring binders in the process of putting a man on the moon. And then those just went out. They were disseminated out through the culture. Every American received lined up, <laughs> uh, you know, in early 1970 and was received his or her eight three ring binders. Yeah. Here's a compass here. Here are your white three ring binders. As a left-handed person, by the way, three ring binders are a kind of tyranny. Uh, because they are oriented for a handedness. Yeah, I mean, if you're writing on paper while it's in the binder, that's definitely an option for right-handed people oh. pulling their hand away from the rings. Of course. If you're left-handed, your hand sits right on the rings. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, so you have to snap it out right and then put it back in. And really, this is the kind of persecution I've had to face my entire life. It's really shaped 
who I am. All the things we right-handers don't even think about. Your right privilege is starting to piss me off. And even if you flip it upside down, it's still the same problem. It doesn't change. (laughs) You know, my mom is left-handed and her handwriting is slanted the complete opposite way of I mean, it's like it's, it's, reverse slanted. It's up and to the left yeah. in, in, in Dealey Plaza parlance. And I find it the most beautiful handwriting. You know, it's my mom's, right? So I think it is so perfect to me. But then when I compare it to other people's handwriting, I realize how crazy it looks. What's the opposite of italics? That's what you're doing, mom. And she always, you know, she always has the book arranged kind of side or, you know, yes. any kind of page. Does she do the thing where she, her hand is almost twisted 90 degrees on itself? No, she doesn't do that. Okay. She actually moves the book so that mm. she can write her style, you know, however it goes. I learned to, I, in my era, we had to learn to conform. We yeah. had to kind of integrate ourselves. They would so. beat you, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I didn't use my right hand, but I had to learn to tilt my letters the correct way, hold my pen like a right-handed person. Yeah. I did have a series of hefty lefty notebooks, uh-huh. which really, <laughs> it's, it's for the, the, it's for the, the robust, the hearty left-handed you're, gentleman, you're I talking, guess. You're talking about my dating life now. The, <laughs> Seeking <laughs> hefty lefties <laughs> seeks companionship. Uh, it was a it was a spiral bound notebook. With, its only distinguishing fact was I think on the inside of the cover it had a list of facts about left handed people and maybe famous left handers because that would cheer you up to be like facts about them. Whoa, Aristotle was left handed. What is facts the, the about left handedness? Number general? one fact would be that they are left handed. <laughs> and the, what's the second fact? Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the gimmick was that the rings were on the top. Oh, sure. So it was, you know, they sell notebooks like this for normals too. Yeah. But the hefty lefty was, you know, because the rings, the spiral binding would not gouge up the side of your left hand while you wrote, which regular notebooks would do. Well, in, my, in the case of my own personal story, which is what all of these episodes really are about. With brief asides <laughs> in which I am permitted to talk about myself. Let's get back to your narrative, John. I was fortunate enough to, um, you know, in a lot of ways, you, you, I think this is fairly common. You feel sometimes like you were born too late because the things that, that the generation right before you had seemed like more akin to how you imagine yourself or born too early hmm. because you didn't get all these new fangled gadgets. I was born at exactly the right moment to experience the stationary and school supplies revolution that happened in the very late 70s, early 80s. Because I was in sixth grade in 1979, 1980. Is that the epicenter of this? And that was, that was the year, you know, sixth grade is kind of your last year of elementary school, at least at, in, in Alaska, last year of elementary school, where you're not, where you have a desk that has a top that opens, you can keep your school supplies right. in it. Right, there's no locker. There's You don't have to move from class to class. This is your last time where you're in the safthy of the nest. It was, sixth grade was my last time to have one of those metal lunchboxes as le- well. Your lunchbox goes away, all of your, um, I used to have on all my pencils a little triangular shaped yeah. Piece of rubber that tried to keep my fingers positioned. Is that what those are for? What are those for? Well, I gripped my pencils in a fist and You don't it, still do that, do you? No, it was but it was like it, it drove teachers crazy. They wanted me to hold my pencil a certain way. I don't remember this was agonizing for all of us for years. People would come and take the pencil out of my hand and sh- forcibly shape my fingers the way they wanted me to hold it. And it felt like I was holding some kind of, I don't want to be have this be about my persecution because, of course, left-handed people had it a lot worse. But people like me that just wanted to hold a pencil in a fist. Fist Neanderthal people. <laughs> you know, they put these little things on it, which were supposed to make it hard for you to hold it. Oh, right. It was like this kind of punishment. It's like the thing you do to a baby's binky to make it yeah. less fun to suck on. Aversion therapy. Yeah. You put a little metal thing in some kid's mouth. Or cayenne. But all it did was just make it uncomfortable for me to hold it in a fist, which I continue to do. You're you're a fist pencil uh, masochist. A fistulin. When did you, when did you uh, convert? Oh, well, I mean, how do I, I mean, I guess I hold the, is this how you're supposed to hold a pencil? No, that's awful. How, how, don't, how don't, is this wrong? I don't want to, I don't want to see I mean, that. Stop doing that. You do this? Stop doing that. Yes, that's how everyone does it. This is not, no, no, Whoa, no. Whoa, no, don't stop it. You no. do this. This is, this feels very secure to me. It's sort of a little bit of a This fist. is Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> as a handicapped character in a movie. <laughs> this is what Bob Dole does, right? He holds a pencil <laughs> so nobody has to, nobody shakes his hand. That's exactly right. <clears throat> well, this is how I hold a pencil and it still would drive a, an elementary school teacher crazy. But in 
in the fall of 1980, I went to seventh grade and I had a locker and I had six classes. And it was overwhelming for me as somebody who could never even keep a pencil, right? I mean, I was like the ultimate pencil loser. And maybe it was because they all had this gummy thing on them and I intentionally lost them. (laughs) But suddenly I had a locker and I had six books and six notebooks and all this responsibility. Yeah, they don't ramp up to it. It's like one day you have one class in one room and the next day you have six or seven of everything. Of everything. And you have to have, where's your book? Where's your folder? Where's your, where's yesterday's assignment? Where's tomorrow's assignment? And at this moment in my life in Anchorage was introduced that great revolution, the Trapper Keeper. It was introduced in Anchorage? Well, no. It Did you was, guys get them first? <laughs> in, in fact. It came down from the North Pole. In fact, it was introduced in Wichita, Kansas, but we'll get there in a moment. Did you have Trapper Keepers in Korea? 1980, you would have been there, right? Uh, uh, no, we moved in 81. But 81. no, I never had, I never owned a Trapper Keeper. I saw them, but I feel like I somehow missed their ebbs and flows in the time when it would have been perfect for me to have one. Yes, right. There was a window, a Trapper Keeper window. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout let me explain where trapper keeper how trapper keepers arrived on the scene where do trapper keepers come from john well A man by the name of E. Bryant Crutchfield (laughs) worked for the Mead Corporation, which was a giant, even then a giant stationary corporation that also branched out into, had its tendrils in many different um, walks of sort of media production. Okay. They were a large enough company that they had a director of new ventures, and that was the self-same E. Bryant Crutchfield, whose job was to go out and come up with new trends in media. That's pretty fancy for a stationary company right? to have a director of new ventures. That seems very modern information age. It does. And it, and especially then when it felt like what you got was pens and right. paper. We have yellow pencils and big pens, and that's the total amount of America's stationary output. Well, Brian Crutchfield was not content with this, and he was out doing studies. He was even going so far as to initiate studies. He had a study uh, in conjunction with someone at Harvard where he realized that during this period in 70s and 80s, classroom size was getting larger. More and more kids were going to be in schools, and there was a growing what would you call it? Uh, and we see it to this day, like students were getting more and more books, more and more projects. It wasn't the simple times right. anymore. We're, we're starting to pile on kids because of all these competing educational theories coming and going and overlapping. That's right. You've got new math. You've got new old math. You've got the old new math. You're going to need a book for each one of those things. And he realized that there was a need, there was an opportunity in the market for a system a system for students where you, rather than carrying six notebooks from home to school and going back to your locker six times during the day to trade notebooks, that there was an opportunity for a consolidated kind of uh, notebook system where you would have six notebooks within a single folder based on a three-ring binder model, be able to take folders in, take them out. It's modular. It's modular, exactly. Thank you. This, and this seems like some kind of, you know, space race side effect of, you know, efficiency as well. Like, what's the right way to be a student? And it seems like that would appeal to a certain kind of kid who likes to have 
the gleaming new notebook with their name in the upper right, but also to parents, right? Like the stationary school supply boom may coincide with the beginning of the the super attentive hovering parent who's always concerned, you know, the boomer having the boomers having their kids and wanting to make sure they do everything right and not be the kind of absent out of touch parents they were delivered, right? Well, the great thing about this kind of system is that <clears throat> it appeals to the hyper organized, but it also maybe even more so appeals to the tragically and chronically disorganized. In what way? Well, that it offers a solution. Hmm. Because the chronically disorganized always feel like, oh, if I just had a, oh, if I could just keep this all together and, you know, it, the disorganization. Anybody with a kid realizes they're just incapable of keeping track of two things at once. Right. And it, and it feels like a problem. Uh, I mean, it clearly is a problem of the mind, but it often feels like a problem of the manifestation or it feels like a problem of the why system. can't, yeah, why can't I keep this all together? It's all in such a jumble. If you go on the internet, 98% of all efficiency you know, workflow websites, you can tell just from reading them that the people writing them are chronically disorganized people who are pretending, right, to be using this new technology. Right, it's a, it's a workaround or a, a coping mechanism. Right. You know, it's the same thing you do when your, your memory starts to go and you start to outsource parts of your brain to little pads, little scraps of paper, little kind of delaying strategies so people don't notice you're struggling to remember a name or a right. place. It's exactly like that. It's, it's a life hack. Well, so Brian Crutchfield was uh, working on this sort of modular folder system for a long time. He, he first conceived of the problem, I guess, in the early 70s. And by the mid-70s, he was kind of putting this system together in his head. Now, this is incredible to me that the Mead Corporation could employ a director of new ventures who had the leeway to spend a decade just sitting room in, you know, like twirling a pencil in his fingers behind his big desk, thinking up this new modular folder system. But at one point he was talking to a sales rep from the Western region, Mead's Western sales rep, mm -hmm. talking about this modular folder system that he was working on. And the, and the rep suggested that he take a look at a peachy folder. Now, are you familiar with the peachy folder? I don't, what is a peachy folder? Well, this is hilarious I'm to me. I'm looking now. <clears throat> this is hilarious because uh, in my world, which is the Western United States, the peachy folder was absolutely a ubiquitous school supply. Um, it's a sort I, of heavy cardstock, peach colored folder. It has no rings inside of it. It's just basically like, it has pockets on either side that you slip pieces of paper into as a kind of clamshell organizer. It's only slightly bigger than a piece of notebook paper. And it, it's peach colored and it has some sort of uh, clip art drawings of students I'm looking at one doing now. sports. I don't like how it's called P hyphen chi. P-E-E -E hyphen I, I don't think you want to start your yellow folder with the word P. <laughs> well, peachies... I mean, that's that's wonderful that you would say that. Peachies were maybe the most modified, the most hilariously hacked of all school supplies. Uh, How they, do you hack a notebook? Well, these notebooks had these drawings of sports people on them. And the most famous one... I'm looking at it now. It's beautiful mid-century kind of illustration of different school sports teams. Right? Yeah, there were several different iterations of this. Um of the peachy folder, but the most famous one was designed in 1964 by a graphic artist by the name of Francis Golden, who many years later, in the course of an interview, was asked about his drawings for peachy, which for many students became like, I mean, they're as familiar to us as Mickey Mouse, yeah. right? I mean, just things we saw every single day. He had to be reminded that he had drawn them. Uh, in the, <laughs> For him, it was just like a weekend job. Yeah, in the late eighties, like he was a he was a famous illustrator. He did he, most of his work was in watercolor, and this was just a commercial art thing that he did, you know, over the course of a weekend. But the famous sports figures are there's a on the front of the peachy folder. There is a a batter who's just about to hit a fastball. You can see he's winding up his his. His front leg is off the ground. He's ready to knock this ball out of the park, although the ball does not appear. Uh, and then below him, there are two basketball players, one of them making a jump shot and the other guy jumping up to 
cover him. The guy jumping is in a weird position. The defender doesn't have his arms all that high. No. And he appears to have kind of bounced off the floor with both hands or some kind of a jetpack. What's, what's interesting about Francis Golden's illustrations is that he does not appear to have ever seen real human beings <laughs> doing sports or in motion. He has never seen sports before. Because both of the basketball players seem like they are on a trampoline. <laughs> this is not how basketball looks. Uh, the, the, the guy shooting the basket... Maybe if the basket was behind him, he could be doing kind of a space jam, like wherever the basket is, this is not how you, how you do a jump shot. And that, I have no idea how that defender is flying through the air. And then there's a third basketball player standing in the background, basically like, Hey, what's up you guys? Yeah. With his hands on his hips. He's, like, in, he's in the distance, like something's, something's going to happen. And then at the bottom, there's a woman uh, in skis, uh, you know, in ski gear, but mm-hmm. she's on the chairlift. Uh, so she's just riding the chair. So not really super Not an sport. action Yeah, not, not like an action shot. But there are some skiers on the ground beneath her. Are you looking at the other side now that has the, the football players? So the back of it, at the top, there's a girl who's just hit a big tennis shot. And like, like we see so often in a tennis game, she's just jumping vertically. She's floating in the air <laughs> after hitting the shot. So she jumped way up high, straight up and down like a volleyball player hit the tennis shot and is now falling uh, with her skirt kind of flooping up. Yeah, it's, and, it's almost a ballet maneuver. She's got these kind of long legs doing a jeté or something. And she's really happy. And then in the middle, there are two football players. This is maybe the most confusing illustration. There's a football player lying on the ground and another one on top of him as though tackling. But he has the ball. But the guy on top has the ball. The ball carrier, number four here, appears to have tackled number 10, a player who's just lying on the ground. Yeah, number 10 even seems like he might be dead. (laughs) Number four is, I don't know what he's doing. He looks like maybe he's getting up from having (laughs) tackled him, although he's the ball carrier. You can't see either of their faces. It's very confusing what's happening. And then at the bottom, there are three runners uh, in the in the midst of a relay race. Oh yeah, I see the baton. They're carrying batons and they are really, really running. Super fast. Super the, fast running. They're at like a 45 degree angle with the ground because of a, the tight turn they're making. They're like the roadrunner. So Peachy's, even before I went into seventh grade, I knew all about Peachy's because Peachy's were synonymous with high school. If you were a high schooler, you had a Peachy. And I remember older kids... Having peaches, these were the real symbols of having graduated to a world where you needed a folder to hold all your papers. And I think I had peaches even in sixth grade. Like a, they were a sign that I was moving forward. Yeah, elementary schoolers don't have papers. No. You, or, get, you or, get something back and you take it home and mom puts it on the fridge. Yeah, right. You have it uh, or you keep them in your desk in a big mess. Not like a lot of filing in fourth grade. But peaches were, I think... Also, their secondary role and maybe their more important role was that they were places to doodle. And those six vignettes were so heavily modified. I mean, they were an opportunity to be creative. We all had peaches, so we all had the same starting point. And depending on how creative you were, how obscene you wanted to be, you could make these Oh, you make the figures do awful things. Make the figures do awful things. You could dress them in different clothes. You could give them thought balloons. You could add other elements. You know, the baseball player could be swinging, could be about to hit almost anything you could draw. Or any one. Um, And you could replace, you know, you could replace the batons in the runners with beer bottles or whatever. You know, there were a million different iterations of this. But one of the great features of peaches was that rather than have pockets on the inside that were just at the bottom of the folder, they had pockets on the sides. So you slipped paper in. And then once you closed the folder, no matter what, how you shook it, the papers couldn't fall out. Genius. Whereas older folders, if with a pocket at the bottom or a different, different style, if you turned them upside down, the papers would immediately fall. And with a backpack or a locker, stuff does just not stay upright. Those are not designed for right file folders. But for people on the West Coast, these peaches were ubiquitous. And it was only many, many years later that I realized that this was like a Hellman's Best Foods mayonnaise schism. There was a line east of which nobody knew about peaches? East of the Rocky Mountains, no one ever heard of them. And so peaches were the product of a company called Western Tablet. 
And they had worked and worked and worked to introduce peaches to the East Coast, and they just never caught on. It's one of the great sort of quizzical things about about American culture and about stationary in particular. Why would they be so popular on the West Coast and invisible elsewhere? That is how high school works, though. Somebody has something and everybody else has to do that stupid thing for the rest of the year. Why does Western Tablet and Stationery Company have their headquarters in Kalamazoo, Michigan? That's not the West. No, well, that's the thing. They're, I mean, you know, and actually Western Tablet has a very famous building in Missouri. They were a large company. Huh. Uh, fam- you know, it's a, bu- a building on the National Historic Register that's now abandoned, and you could probably buy it for $2,500. It's like they knew that their destiny was bringing peaches to the West, even well, though they hailed from... And Kalamazoo was the West if we're talking about during the French and Indian Wars. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... E. Bryant Crutchfield being introduced to the concept of the peachy folder by his Western sales rep realized the ingenuity of these side pockets. And he integrated that notion into his now growing concept of what this system was going to be. And he eventually, in collaborating with other people at Mead, came up with the idea that these folders which were basically rip-offs, just pure rip-offs of peaches, including I mean, peaches were famous for having tables printed on the inside. Oh, yeah, I remember you know, that. Multiplication we're, tables and... Pecks and bushels and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and how to, you know, convert metric to uh, imperial or right. whatever. But not famous left-handed people. No famous left-handed it's people. It's just less famous right-handed people. It's just the accomplishments of famous right-handed people, like multiplication. Abraham Lincoln freed the <laughs> slaves. Euclid dreamed up geometry. <laughs> Uh, but then some left-handed people also did some things, less Pro- significant things. Probably. Yeah, maybe they were, they're mostly artists. I was just noticing in the uh, Avengers movie, Scarlett Johansson signed stuff with her left hand. One more reason to love Scarlett Johansson. And in the credits, when the actors are signing their names, spoilers, uh, you can see that she's left-handed. All the, the letters go from upper left to lower right, which oh, is very hard to do in a, for a right-handed adorbs. hand. Adorbs. Uh, anyway, so in stealing the whole concept of peaches, uh, he took the drawings away. Right. We don't, it turns out the, the special hotness here is not the oddly drawn <laughs> basketball players. It's the side pockets. But his idea was that these folders then would have punches for three ring binders. And, and the peachy, or I'm sorry, the trappers, which is what he, this is the name he coined for his little folders because they trapped your papers. The trappers would be kept in a, a binder, a three, essentially a, a glorified three ring binder with a flap that he called the Trapper Keeper. I don't think I ever understood the name until now. Yep. I thought it was just a Trapper Keeper in the sense of it was saying the same thing twice, two words that meant the same thing, like Taxi Cab or Pussycat. I didn't realize... Right, Shrimp Scampi. (laughs) For example. (laughs) Jumbo Shrimp. Oh, wait, that's an oxymoron. The Trappers are the folders. Yes. And the Keeper keeps the... I always thought the name was dumb. I'd never liked the name. Well, do you like it better now? A little. It It does still seem like it's a 17th century French voyageur or something. Like uh, it makes me think of like beaver trapping and fur trapping. Well, we think if you think about a keeper as being a um, a goalie, that's true, and a trapper being like a yeah fur trapper. So it's a soccer team where everyone's a fur trapper. It's a fur it's a a fur trapper goalie. Yeah, but the goalie maybe is not. None of this is useful. No, but uh, but there is a distinction between the the trappers and then the system within the. Could you buy the trappers separately? No. Oh yes, you could buy trappers separately. You could not buy a trapper keeper without trappers. If you bought the keeper, it would come with a set of trappers. Yeah, but you can buy extra trappers and, and add them to your trapper. And the keeper. keeper would come with whatever, a day's worth of classes. It would come with five or six or seven I think the original trappers trapper already in it? keeper came with three folders, but you could add, mm-hmm. it was, you know, modular, right? You could add to match To trappers. match y- y- the modern lifestyle. That's right. Because, you know, at first you have three classes, then you have six, then you have 16 classes. Then you have 32 classes. Yeah, they just double every year. That's what college is all about, kids. If you're listening to this program and you're not in college yet, you will be taking 32 classes by the time you're a junior in college. It just doubles every year. And when you graduate, when it crosses uh, 4,096. What was great about the Mead Company in the late 1970s was unlike today, if you're like, let's say you have an app or a startup that's going to be disrupting the media environment of 2019. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to rush your product 
into rush it just right through beta and get it online within maybe even hours of conceiving of it. Yeah, you got to be first to market. That's right. Whereas at this point in time, Crutchfield has now spent, what, six years conceiving (laughs) of the Trapper Keeper? And he decides rather than go crazy and just put it for sale, he's going to test market it. And he takes it to Wichita, Kansas. They pick Wichita. I think this happens fairly often. Somewhere like Wichita is deemed the most American place or, you know, a market that will sort of stand. It's kind of like the Iowa caucuses, right? The where it's a geographical accident that because it's in the middle, people think it must be representative somehow. Yeah, this is the normalist place. And they introduced Trapper Keepers into Wichita. And I can only imagine their trepidation. Like, well, let's hope this works, boys. <laughs> they, they made a television commercial and flooded Wichita with Trapper Keepers in 1978, during school shopping season in the late summer of 78. And much to their surprise and delight, Trapper Keepers went viral. Absolutely everyone in Wichita needed a Trapper Keeper. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Once the school decides, yeah, once the school ecosystem decides you've got to have the thing, then everyone just has to get the thing and it's and you you're kicking yourself for not realizing earlier that you needed the thing. That's right. I mean, how can how could I ever have lived without a trapper keeper? Said the students in Wichita in 1978. And did they have the did they have the eye catching designs? Because I remember um, trapper keepers not for their functionality, but as a lifestyle accessory. Well, now that came later in the in the its first iteration. They just were primary colors, and in fact, the trappers oh. were red, blue, and green, and the trapper keepers were also. You could pick red, blue, or green. The three things that all American high schoolers love. Yeah. Red, my, blue, my and green. first Trapper Keeper was red, and I had red, blue, and green folders in it. Later on, as we'll see, Trapper Keepers became an opportunity for people to be fancy. Hmm. But they were an immediate hit, and then they were introduced nationwide. And by 1980, when I first encountered a Trapper Keeper, they were absolutely de rigueur, like uh, – if you did not have a trapper keeper, something was going terribly wrong in your family. Uh, your priorities were all mixed up. You could not. <laughs> Imagine the principal calling you and is everything okay at home? <laughs> you absolutely could not show up to class with old legal pads, which was my family's instinct. But fortunately, they weren't expensive. A trapper keeper was under $5. Hmm. And the trappers themselves were um you know, 50 cents. Are the trappers paper or like cardstock or plastic? They're cardstock. They're almost exactly peaches, but slightly, uh, they were the cardstock, but with a slightly glossier finish. But trapper keepers, unlike most stationary fads, unlike most school fads, they never really had a blowback. Uh, kids did not do what they normally do, which is two years later, reject entirely Trapper Keepers. That's baby stuff. Uh, Right. I I mean, oh, you still have a Trapper Keeper? Nothing came along that bested Trapper Keepers for this sort of combination of functionality and it really was compact style. killer app. And you could, you know, you could add little, a little pouch to keep your calligraphy pens and your erasers. And I no longer had an excuse for Constantly needing to borrow pencils from my friends because I had a Trapper Keeper. I never had a pencil. I needed a Trapper Keeper. 
This was also when the first erasable pens came out. We should maybe talk about that on a future. Erasable uh, pens. Yeah, erasable pens. I, f- I find the, the logo of the Trapper Keeper the most iconic thing in my mind, even yes. though I never had one. Those kind, I don't know what that font is, but the rounded 80s letters with the kind of pseudo sci-fi breaks yeah. in, in the round parts. So it kind of looks like the Apple II logo or something. It's, Need. It's very much. And there were TV commercials. Do you remember that? Uh, I remember seeing an ad where at the end they would say, made by Mead, of yeah. course. Yeah. Which I thought was very egotistical. Made by Mead, of course. Of course. Who do you, who do you think you are? Of course. Who, who else? <laughs> Look for the record with me on the cover. <laughs> um, what was interesting was that, as you mentioned a second ago, uh, Trapper Keepers became they started to add graphic elements to them very early. Yeah, the, the, the first ones were just these primary colors. But then I think, in fact, E. Bryant Crutchfield took a few of his vacation photos. Like, here's a picture of a <laughs> waterfall. Here's a picture of a lighthouse I took. Here's the wife. And they blew, blew them up and put them on the outside of these Trapper Keepers. So you could pick the waterfall one. There were only three of them, right? Maybe there was a... If he had just taken a better vacation. Yeah, right. It was like an old barn. to Carlsbad Caverns or something. But you could, because that plastic on the outside, you could, it was open at least enough that you could put your own picture in there. Yeah, there was like a mylar sheath that went around whatever the plastic that the backing was made out of. The same way a a DVD case is today. So you could actually put stuff between the the plastic and the transparent covering, right? Right. And so Mead figured out, oh, kids are doing this. This is something we should just like uh, get on top of. We need to profiteer from kids drawing the cool S. <laughs> right. You don't want to have the peachy thing where where people are just putting <laughs> on the tennis player. Uh, you want to do that on your own. And so they started to initiate, you know, more and more designs that were coming from the home company, right? And so you'd have a couple of cute puppies. You might have a skateboarder doing a kind of trick. A horses for the girls, sports cars for the boys. That's right. And a Lamborghini, ine- inevitably a Lamborghini. But, Testero- uh, Testarossa? Wasn't that the 80s sports sure, car of, sure was. of little boys' dreams? Because it sounds like testosterone. But in the, in the mid to late 80s, they hired a, a young graphic artist by the name of Lisa Frank, who who had made a little empire for herself at the, you know, ripe old age of 24, designing stickers, because this was also part of this stationary revolution was every manner of little sticker and little... I remember the sticker boom. Yeah. I think it was mostly for girls, but I didn't know. So I was like, I've got to have a sticker collection. And there were, it was very seductive. There was like a, a store at the mall that would just sell stickers. And the thing had a hundred walls of little rolls and you could get the little stars or the little glittery dolphins. Or whatever it was. Oh, I'm looking at Lisa Frank's art now, and yeah, I'm right back in the sticker store. Yeah, well, and uh, sticker, this was also a time, I think, when teachers were, I mean, at least for me, I remember the first time a teacher gave me a sticker as a prize for having done a good job and feeling like she may as well have given me a gold doubloon, you know, like a sticker. And this wasn't just like a, like a gold star. I mean, I remember my first gold star too, but the first time it was a sticker that said like, good job. And there was an alligator. It was so exciting. And I, and it, it, it scratches some itch in kids. Yeah, Teachers can create their own little economies where everyone's like, oh, you got the alligator. I haven't got the alligator yet. You got the alligator. So Lisa Frank famous for drawing, not just alligators, but I mean, Lisa Frank's drawings, if you look at them are almost quintessentially the 80s. They communicate that kind of big-eyed, rainbow-drenched, unicorn cuteness. Rainbows, pegasuses. The palette is not quite like Miami Vice pastels, but it's also not quite neon. It's um, it's really ramped-up colors. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of candy, a candy-colored, technicolor, Sour Patch Kids kind of a world. Yeah. With lots of airbrushed, shiny highlights on everything, on every little tiger cub's eyes or dolphins' heart-shaped bubbles. And somehow... It's aggressively this, cute. It's aggressively cute, and somehow this Lisa Frank tie-in, or, or Lisa Frank as the, as the graphic artist for Mead, or for uh, Trapper Keepers in particular, Trapper Keepers continued to expand in popularity to the point that they were selling $100 million worth of Trapper Keepers a year. And 
it wasn't just the graphic elements that kept changing. They would, they made little mo- modifications, you know, they'd give it a different snap. Uh, after a while it was, uh, they put Velcro on it because Velcro, of course, Velcro need to be on everything. I think by the time I saw them, they were Velcro. I don't yeah. know if I ever saw a snap the, one. I, the, the first one I had had a snap. I do remember kids being so excited about their Velcro shoes. Like, look at this, no more laces. This is the future. <laughs> and now of course it's just shorthand for somebody who's too old to tie their shoes or it's kind of a short bus accessory. Well, and and when Velcro fell out of stock, I mean, uh, it's astonishing to me that for 40 years, has it been 40 years? Yeah, 40 years. Trapper keepers have more or less not changed their design at all, have never fallen out of fashion, and yet can somehow make these tiny little changes like, oh, now we're, now we have Velcro. Now we don't have Velcro. Like they're always right ahead, just as soon as a kid would be like, Velcro on your folder, they go back to snaps or to magnets. So Trapper Keeper is still around. Still around, still enormously successful. Uh, As recently as 2014, Trapper Keeper introduced the Snapper Trapper. The Snapper Trapper? The Snapper Trapper is a trapper, but rather than having to open and close your three-ring binder. What a hassle that is. I know. uh, It has a little, the, the, the little three ring portion of your trapper can just sort of snap into the three ring binder component. Ah. So all indicating that uh, Mead continues to uh, evolve and have the trapper keeper component system keep up with the times. They know kids today don't have time to be opening three ring binders when they could just snap them in and out. Lisa Frank is still alive. She still operates her famous art style out of a workshop in Tucson, but I guess she's famously reclusive. Like yes. there, like there hasn't been a picture published of her in decades. And when people interview her, they get they agree to obscure her face. She's a figure of mystery. Maybe she's actually a unicorn. Uh, or yeah, or in a relationship with a unicorn and she doesn't want people to know. Uh, the meat company grew and grew and grew and became one of those American corporations that kept buying and selling other media companies. Oh, that's funny. Like, I would think they were the kind of company that eventually just gets bought. They get bought by Target or 3M or something. But you no, would, they're, they're now their own corporate giant? They're their own thing. They kept, every time another company came up with something interesting, they would buy them. They bought the Big Chief Tablet Company, the... Um, they bought a bunch of little, uh, you know, everybody that made paper or did any kind of thing like this got bought by Mead. Mead ended up now, the uh, parent company is called Mead West Vaco, which is all one word. Because they, they probably bought Western Vaco and something company. Right. Uh, so Mead West Vaco is like a S&P 500 company. Wow. And uh, maybe you would know them best as having developed LexisNexis, the legal uh, Wait, research me, company. Me developed Trapper Keepers and LexisNexis. And LexisNexis, which they recently sold for like a billion and a half dollars. I could just imagine E. Bryant Crutchfield or whatever it is sitting in his office for 10 years being like... <laughs> I need a system for law students to find case law. Well, that's exactly it. Does it have a unicorn on it? I don't know yet. I need a few more years. And that concludes Trapper Keepers. Entry 1331.IS0816, certificate number 31310, in the omnibus. Now, Futurelings, we have no idea what kind of stationery will exist in your era. Presumably, whatever ends our civilization, will have returned our digital app-based economy to a simpler airbrushed unicorn stationary-based one in which all of your doings are recorded on perforated green and white striped dot matrix printer paper. So social media doesn't exist for you. No. No, you're all telepathic. No, they just write things down on dot matrix printer paper and, and write, they'll make 15 copies of it and hand it to all their uh, coral polyp friends. Well, or or run it through the machine and have it turn into punch cards, and then... That's right. Yeah. Just keep them in order. Don't drop the box. But we tried to save time with social media. It was a huge mistake. Ugh. Worst thing we ever did. So sorry. But in our era, uh, the peak of, of social media mania, we were at Omnibus Project on multiple platforms. I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter. John was at John Roderick on Twitter. Getting yelled at and called Instagram. a boomer. Called a boomer all the time on Twitter now. You do? Yeah, because anybody that's younger than... Aren't you arguably a boomer? No. I am 
you know, when they first came up with Generation X, I was at the young side of what they were describing as Generation X. Oh, yeah, 68, right? 68. I was I was young Generation X, and now I'm firmly in the middle of Generation X. I am nothing. I have spent my life at war with the baby boom. In five years, I kids are going to be asking you what you did in, in, the the, war. in Korean War. Yeah. I know. And so anytime I say something even slightly, like, not Marxist on the internet, some handful of kids will be like, boomer. I'm like, I, I agree that that is an insult. Unlike Just you, not directed at me. Unlike you, I have met a baby boomer. <laughs> uh, there was one bright spot on this terrible, terrible garbage heap of humanity, which was the Futurelings Facebook group. Uh, in which someone has accused me of not knowing the movie What's Up, Doc, and I am very angry yes. because I am a... We have both watched that Barbara Streisand vehicle many times. <laughs> I feel like we talked about it on the show. <laughs> uh, my wife and I would not be together if not for the movie What's Up, Doc. Fun story. Is that right? Yes. At the uh, at the very chaste little uh, after-school soda fountain party that you guys met at. Archie uh... and uh, Moose and Midge were all there. <laughs> She rolled up on her roller skates and you were like, want to watch this Barbara Streisand movie at the local library? She, uh, yeah, they were having a Barbara Streisand <laughs> film festival. Wait, this is turning into more of like a gay pickup. Uh, I think I may have said this on the show before. She said one line from What's Up Doc and I said the next line. Hello, and love, at like, first love at first sight. sight. Isn't that crazy? So yeah, just for the record, future legs. I know what's up, Doc. Don't come at me. I, I'm a boomer. <laughs> uh, the only two kids at BYU that had ever even seen a Barbara Streisand movie. I bet there was a lot of, I bet a lot of those kids were growing up in heavy VHS homes with lots of their parents' 70s classics in heavy rotation. Yeah, I suppose that's I'm true. sure there are a lot of those kids that could quote every line of Saturday Night <laughs> it's, Fever. It's a mad, or, mad, mad world. Exactly. It's a mad, <laughs> mad, mad. That's very on the nose. A couple of my Mormon friends were very into those. 60s kind of, uh, those magnificent men in their flying machines, right. <laughs> uh, the great race. I don't know why that was, a, we should do that genre of movie. Oh, that's a wonderful genre. I mean, just the posters alone. Yes. 60s, not very famous movie stars in a series of odd. Things about like dirigible Odd vehicles, yeah. <laughs> and it's puzzling. They weren't even big stars. I mean, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World has Spencer Tracy in addition to the comedy stars. Right. But most of these British ones, it's just some like music hall guy you've never heard of or, you know, and a special appearance by Peter Ustinov or something. And you're like, whoa, now we're talking. 1964 Best Supporting Actor winner Peter Ustinov. Yes, please. <laughs> Uh, we received email at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. And for physical artifacts that do not fit in your email, cram them in as you might. You could use the U.S. Postal Service to send them to us uh, at the Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea idea how long our civilization survived. You seem bummed about that today. Usually we're quite perky about it. Yeah. But I when mean, you think about it, bit of a downer. Bit of a downer uh, conceit for a podcast. I do feel like it's just now dawning on me that we are just the trapper keeper for ephemera that's like probably spent a thousand years floating on the bleach ocean. We'll inscribe all this in a golden trapper keeper and snap it shut. Yeah. Leave it uh, under... 10 feet of permafrost in Svalbard. Look for the record with us on the cover. <laughs> uh, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.